Hello again, and welcome to our fifth Bible study in the life of the prophet Samuel. Please be turning to 1 Samuel chapter 10. You may have heard of the name Hugo Vickers, who is a professional historian, but who is also wheeled out by the BBC, usually, to help us to understand great civic events. Recently, of course, the coronation. And he's able to show how the coronation has stemmed from how we crown kings back in the Middle Ages in England, but even back further than that, as we're going to see today. King Charles's coronation consisted of a recognition, an anointing, a consecration, a crowning, an enthronement, and a blessing. And we'll see how many of those things crop up in the appointment of Saul as king. We met Saul last time looking for donkeys, and he found a seer. He found Samuel the prophet, who took him on one side and said he had a secret to tell him. He said in chapter 9 that he is the one to whom the whole desire of Israel has turned. It's turned to you and your whole family line. In other words, the people, the nation of Israel, were looking to this man with expectation and hope. And in chapter 10, Samuel anoints the new king. Now in, our, in May, in our coronation, there was an acclamation and there was an anointing and there was a crowning followed by another acclamation. But Saul's anointing was in secret. Only Samuel was there. Reading from chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb, at Zelfzar, on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, pipes and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal, I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. King Charles's anointing took place behind a screen. Nobody saw what was going on. That dates back to this event when Saul was anointed in secret by Samuel. Samuel had sent his servant away so that nobody could observe what was going to happen. It was unprecedented. Priests were anointed, but not judges and not prophets, 
But now another class of people was being anointed by oil in the name of the Lord, kings. Samuel said, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Notice how Samuel studiously avoids use of the word king. He speaks about you being ruler over God's people. And then when Saul left Samuel, Saul would come across three signs. These are not supernatural signs. They're just things that would happen in, in order, but ordered by God. He would come across two men who would tell him the donkeys have been found. Then he would meet three men, one of whom would offer him two loaves of bread, which he was to accept. And then he would go to Gibeah, or near to Gibeah, where he would come across a procession of prophets, and the Spirit will come powerfully on you. Or the English Standard Version says, the Spirit will rush upon you and you will prophesy. Just in passing, notice that in verse 5, Gibeah is described as being Gibeah of God, but in chapter 11, verse 4, it's described as being Gibeah of Saul. So Gibeah was Saul's hometown, but it had a Philistine outpost there. We don't know how big it was how, or how influential. The Old Testament is very disdainful of groups of prophets prophesying together in schools, as they were known. You may recall that Amos said, I'm not a prophet or a son of the prophet. I don't belong to one of these schools of the prophets. I've been directly called by God to prophesy. He vigorously denied membership of these groups. But here is a group prophesying. Now, what are we to understand by this? I think it means they were full of praise. I think words of adoration and worship were coming from them all the time. I remember the time of the Toronto Blessing, and there was a meeting being held here in the church which I attend. And at the meeting at the front, we were praying for people to receive a blessing from the Holy Spirit. And I remember this person lying on their back on the floor. And as we laid our hands on this person, reams and reams of scripture came from their mouth. They could never have memorized so much. Chapter upon chapter, verse upon verse, passage upon passage, yard upon yard of the word of God was pouring out of this person's heart and mind and mouth. It's quite a remarkable experience. And the more we prayed for them, the more they spoke the word of God. I think something like that was going on here. These prophets are prophesying, they're speaking the praises of God, and then when Saul met them, he had a similar experience. Something says, go to Gilgal and wait seven days for me there. Now in verses 9 to 27, we have the first acclamation of Saul's kingship. Those three signs were fulfilled, but only the third one is described in verses 9 to 27. And when Saul begins prophesying, people start saying, is Saul also among the prophets? In other words, this is something bizarre. This is something totally incongruous. We just cannot relate this donkey herder with prophets prophesying the glory of God. It's like saying, um, is King Charles really a beatnik? Or, or is Princess Anne actually a go-go dancer? You know, the two ideas were incomprehensible. They couldn't get over this idea that Saul was prophesying the glory of God. Saul's uncle challenged him. Where have you been? What have you been up to? And Saul told him what had been happening and what Samuel had said, but not about the anointing, not about the appointment as king. Well, in chapter 17, Samuel gathered the nation. 
for the coronation. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you, but you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities, and you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had made all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. The power of lots was taken very seriously by the Old Testament. It says in Proverbs chapter 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. But the last time we find lots being used in the Bible is when Matthias was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle in Acts chapter 1. It is not something that we use in the life of the church today. Now Samuel called this political rally and all had to attend. And first of all, he upbraided them a bit, told them off. He said, no, you've decided that you want a king, so we're going to give you a king and we'll choose this king by lots. And the nation was cut down by tribes, by clans, by families, and eventually Saul. But Saul was missing, Saul was hiding. Those seven days of waiting had scared him. He was feeling overwhelmed. Can you imagine in Westminster Abbey, as the Archbishop comes to crown King Charles, he says, well, where is the king? Where's Charles got to? And somebody says, oh, he's hiding in that little room over there in the Abbey, with the, looking after all the umbrellas. In Congress, really, Saul was so scared of this coronation. He's presented to all the people by Samuel. He's taller than any of them. And he's endorsed by the prophet. The man Yahweh has chosen is Saul. And then there was the acclamation, long live the king. And in verse 25, Samuel wrote a book of do's and don'ts, probably based on Deuteronomy chapter 17. Just as in our coronation, both of Charles and of Queen Elizabeth, they were given a Bible. The moderator of the Church of Scotland gave them a Bible and said, this book is the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Well, here's Samuel back in those days giving 
Saul and the people a written instruction of how to go about kingship, the rights and the duties of a king. He must be an Israelite. He must not build up a large cavalry. He mustn't take many wives and he mustn't accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. The rights are what Saul could expect from his citizens and his duties are what Saul had to do for his people. And then at the end of the chapter, Saul went back home to Gibeah with a bodyguard, with valiant men whose hearts God had touched. Remember, he had no royal court, he had no palace, he had nowhere else to go. He had to go back home to, to Gibeah, where there was a Philistine garrison, remember. But not everybody had accepted this coronation. We're told in verse 27 about scoundrels. How can this fellow save us? They despised him. The acclamation was not complete. But Saul kept silent. Just as in our coronation, there were people with banners saying, not our king. And so it was at the coronation of Saul. Well, in chapter 11, the story continues to Saul's early victory. And I need to tell you about a man called Nahash, who's described in verse 1. Nahash was an Ammonite, so the Ammonites were cousins of the Israelites, but they were ruthless enemies of the Israelites. And Nahash demonstrated his ruthlessness, his brutality in battle, by gouging out the right eye of everyone he captured. Imagine the effect that has on a soldier. The soldier can't shoot straight, they can't march straight, they can't do anything straight, because they've lost the sight in one eye. Now the Ammonites claimed ownership of the land east of the River Jordan, but some clans of Israel had settled there. And Nahash went to one of these towns called Jabesh Gilead and put it under siege. And the Israelites there caved in. They said in verse 1, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. Now this wasn't just a military subjugation, it was a recognition that their gods were more powerful than the Israelite gods. So this was a slander upon the name of the Lord. Now Nahash says, only if you all agree to losing your right eyes, like everybody else is going to, then, uh, uh, then you can surrender. I wonder if you remembered Samson, who'd lost both of his eyes. Jabesh Gilead, the people there, asked for seven days to think about it. And after seven days, they'll open their gates and surrender to Nahash. Now, why on earth Nahash agreed to this seven-day delay? I've no idea. Scripture doesn't tell us. But he did. And during those days, 42 miles away, two days on foot, was Gibeah, where Saul was with those valiant men. And Saul had gone back to his old job of farming. And when he finished for the day, in verse 5, he came home and he found people weeping. What, what are you crying about? He said, what, what's all the sorrow? What's the cause of all this? And they said, well, our friends, our relatives, our, our Israelites in Jabesh Gilead, they're, they're going to surrender to the Ammonites and then they're going to have their eyes, the right eyes, torn out. And it says in verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Saul. The ESV, the Spirit rushed upon him. And he burned with anger. This was a righteous indignation at what was going to be unleashed upon the fellow Israelites in Jabesh Gilead and upon the reputation of the Lord. And he set out like one of the 
judges of old. In verse 7, he slaughtered two oxen, cut them up, and sent parts around the country. And this was a, a message saying, come and meet me for battle, and if you don't, we'll come to your village and we'll kill all your, uh, your oxen as well. Fight or else. Don't be a refusenik. You've got to come and fight for, for, for the people. And the people were terrified when they received this message. And we're told in verse 8 that the men gathered at Bezek, which is on the west side of the Jordan, 300,000 from Israel and 30,000 from Judah. Notice already this early, the writer is distinguished between Israelites and the tribe of Judah. Now the tribe of Judah were all Israelites, but you know how later down the track the kingdom split into two. They sent messengers to Jabesh Gilead saying, we're going to rescue you and we're going to do it tomorrow. And it says the men of Jabesh were elated. So the Israelites told a fib to the Ammonites. They said, we'll surrender tomorrow and you can have our right eyes. Truth is the first casualty of war. So Saul divided his troops into three companies. Gideon and Abimelech had done similarly in the book of Judges. They crossed the Jordan to the eastern side. They crept up on the besieging Ammonites between 2 o'clock in the morning and 6 a.m. and they had a great victory. Now Saul's army had an instinct to get revenge on those refuseniks, those skivers, those people who said, shall Saul reign over us? Those who despised Saul, who hadn't joined in the fight. We're going to kill them and wipe them out. Saul said no. He said, the Lord has rescued Israel. If the Spirit of the Lord had not rushed on me, I couldn't have done it. And Samuel then tells the people to go to Gilgal to renew the kingship there. The coronation which had taken place in chapter 10 was confirmed at the end of chapter 11. And in verse 15, the people make Saul king with sacrifices and worship. Notice in chapter 10 verse 1, a private anointing. In 10 verse 24, a political appointment as king and the acclamation, long live the king. And then in 11 verse 15, they make Saul king in the context of worship. The coronation of Saul is in two parts. Chapter 10, chapter 11. But notice there's no crown and there's no throne. Not yet, anyway. It says in verse 15, Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. So far, so good. Saul hadn't put a foot wrong. Could anything possibly go wrong? Well, that we will see in, in a future study. Now, what can we take away from these two chapters, which can be a blessing to us and a help to us in our, our Christian work? Firstly, I think we can see that the exercise of spiritual gifts does not guarantee that a person is godly. Just because Saul was filled with the spirit of prophecy and was praising the Lord did not guarantee that his heart was right with the Lord. It's most remarkable in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is on trial for his life before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, 
but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Caiaphas, this unbelieving high priest who is getting involved in crucifying Jesus Christ, is prophesying, saying that the death of Jesus will be for the nation and for all the children of God throughout the world to make them one. The exercise of prophetic gifts is not a guarantee of godliness in the person who is exercising those gifts. And we need to be aware of this. Don't put people, don't put such people onto a pedestal. Some people with healing ministries have made great names for themselves and in some cases great fortunes for themselves by exercising this spiritual gift. Don't therefore put that person on a pedestal and assume that everything they say and do is reliable or godly. Secondly, we notice at this coronation there were two groups. There were those who acclaimed the king, long lived the king, and there were those who despised Saul, the scoundrels. Oh, they're not those in our own day who acclaim Jesus as king, and those in our own day who despise Jesus, who claimed to be a king. Didn't Jesus tell a parable wherein he, as the judge of all the world at the end of time, would separate people from being sheep and goats, and the sheep would go on his right hand and be gathered into his kingdom, and the goats would be dismissed, and those people would never see the kingdom of Christ. There were two groups here in 1 Samuel. Those who recognised the kingship of Saul and the scoundrels who did not. And such is the same today. And then again, something else I think we can get from these chapters is the, the, the power and the authority of the Bible. The Bible is the unfolding story of the kingship of Jesus. The Bible is the salvation history of how God set about bringing a Messiah into the world who would die for our sins and gather to himself all those who believed in him. Samuel had written a book for Saul and for the people. He said, here are the do's and here are the don'ts. Here are the duties and here are the, uh, the, the, the things you, sh you, sh you should expect. We have... God's requirements in a book. God has written down for us in his word how he wants us to live, how he wants us to behave. Jesus was anointed at his baptism. Jesus was crowned at his ascension. Jesus will be ultimately acknowledged with universal worship when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord even those who formerly were scoundrels and had rejected him. These chapters remind us of the authority of God's written word and how important it is that we abide by it. And it reminds us of the greatness of Christ, anointed, crowned, ultimately to be recognised by everyone. Jesus Christ is Lord. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy chosen king through all eternity. Glory to Christ 
Thank you for watching. Amen.